What's going on, everybody? Chris, back again with the Wildlife Command Center podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for giving us awesome reviews and five stars, like if you're on Spotify, an actual worded review. If you're on iTunes, it really helps the podcast, boosts the ratings and gets more people to listen to it. Thanks. You're the best. I really appreciate it. On this episode, as you can see in the title, Michael and I talk about the origins of falconry and like the start of the hierarchical structure of it back in like medieval times, let's say, you know, the, the feudal era, you know, as lords and kings would practice falconry. Well, they had people practicing falconry and then they would showboat to their kings and feudal lord friends. We go over all of that in this episode, as well as what we do for like Renaissance festivals. It's pretty interesting stuff. I personally haven't done one in a, in a long time as far as Ren Fairs go, but I used to do them in St. Louis and they were a blast. Thanks again for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. Let's jump into it with me and Michael Bear Hands Baran on the Wildlife Command Center podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chris back again with another episode of the Wildlife Command Center podcast. And again, this week we have on one of our favorite guests, Michael Bear Hands Baran. Bear Hands Baran. Hey, hey. So, Thank you for coming back on again, obviously, every week. Ha! Absolutely. You are the man, the owner of Wildlife Command Center. I wanted to talk to you about something that you're pretty passionate about, and I haven't done in a while, but when I was back there, I would do a lot, the Renaissance Festivals. Oh, man, I love Renaissance Fairs. Yeah. You know, part of the reason why I love it so much is because I get to dress up like a medieval falconer. Yeah. Anything to get yourself in that leather, huh? Man, I'll tell you what, I I have amassed and I have created and crafted a pretty cool leather outfit for a medieval falconer. It is, man. Over the years, your, your setup has become increasingly awesome. I know. Everybody always loves it. I mean, I constantly have pictures being taken of me. You know, like I can't walk through the Renaissance Festival. And if people don't know what a Renaissance Festival is... It is this gathering where there are thousands of people that come into this set-up village, usually out in the middle of nowhere. There's some really, really big ones across the United States, but the one that we go to is in St. Louis, Missouri, and they have this huge village that's set up into the woods, and it's like actual houses, actual buildings and structures, and there's an actual jousting field. And people come up and, and they put themselves back into the Renaissance era of, you know, the medieval falconers and the knights and the armor and the jousting and the kings and the queens and the princesses and the, and the courts, you know, and all these things. And they recreate this Renaissance and so there's all kinds of things there. There's all kinds of things to do. There's blacksmithers that are blacksmithing traditional equipment that was used back in those days. Yeah, legitimate blacksmiths. Oh, yeah. Real legitimate using coal and or wood to smith metal. I always pick up some pretty interesting things from that. But anyway, they, they all get together and it's this time where they can just kind of forget about the modern world and go back to a time that was much, much simpler. Now, I mean, I do realize that we glorify it. Yeah. Because <laughs> it probably wasn't that great. 
It was probably horrible. <laughs> it was probably pretty horrible. However, Wildlife Command Center has always taken care of what they consider the free petting zoo. Mm-hmm. And Wildlife Command Center, along with our nonprofit organization called Raptor Rescue Inc., and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but we always set up this very large area, actually, and we'll bring in some miniature donkeys and some miniature horses and some things that people can pet. We have been doing these huge war horses. We've got a pair of war horses for the last two years. They are Yorkshire war horses uh, or shire war horses and they're huge man they're they're like i'm six foot one and i have to reach up about two feet to touch the top of the backs of these horses they're so they're so lords they're so so huge and then we have the bunnies (laughs) on the other end of the spectrum on the other end of the spectrum and but the bunnies man people love the bunnies we so we've got this place that raises show rabbits. They raise these kind of rabbits that are called lion head rabbits. You should Google it, lion head mm-hmm. rabbits. And anyway, when the rabbits are not up to show standards, they bring them to us because they really want us to euthanize them because they don't, mm-hmm. they don't like to euthanize them. Well, and we do humanely euthanize the rabbits and we recycle, reuse. And so, you know, we have a lot of carnivores at the Wildlife Command Center headquarters. And so they, they certainly are recycled, reused. But we keep a few of them because some of them are pretty cute, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dang cute. We have this whole petting zoo set up and we've got snakes. We've got big snakes. We've got little snakes. But mostly we have birds of prey because we pretend to be medieval falconers. And so we've got owls there, we've got eagle owls there, we've got barn owls there, we have lantern falcons, we have Harris hawks, we've got red-tailed hawks. And so we also do a hawk talk twice a day where we go out to the Warriors Island and we usually have a crowd of 50 to 60 people that just want Hmm. to know about the birds of prey. Yeah. And we do an educational talk. I usually break it into two talks. I've kind of refined it over the years. I was about to say, we're like six years deep now or something. Yeah, yeah. We've been doing it since 2015. Nice. Yeah. And I've really refined the talk to two talks. And I have found that keep it simple, keep it basic. And so the two talks that I do are, one of them is the difference between a hawk and a mm. falcon. And it's amazing. I can talk for an hour straight and keep a crowd of 60 people, including kids, mesmerized for an hour just talking about the differences between a hawk and a falcon. Huh. And then we do another talk. It's a real, real basic talk about owls. And so we bring, an, we bring two owls Everybody in. loves that. They do. Everybody loves Everybody owls. Everybody loves owls. No doubt about it. I mean, you know, through history, especially in medieval times, and and even prior to that, owls have always been a symbol of a lot of different things. Oh, hey, that reminds me, quick side note, since you love medieval times and stuff like that, have you seen The Witcher on Netflix? Yeah. Okay, are you watching season two? I have. 
Okay, yeah, just dropped. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've watched it. Like the whole oh, season. Oh, yeah, me too. I finished the last up. Dude, how about those freaking hooting noises they gave to the barn owl? Come on. No, no, those were coos. They, they used a pigeon. It was a dove yes, or a that's coo. True. At the very last episode, though, when they showed, I won't give any spoilers, what the owl actually was, they gave it legitimate, like one of the very last scenes of the last episode, they gave it legit hooting noises. Like, who? Wait, they did not have an animal expert. I, I promise you, my name was not attached to that as the <laughs> animal expert. We would not have had pigeon barn owls. If you go to my IMDb page under Michael Baran, and you look at all the movies that I've been involved with. We promise that Witcher is not one of them. (laughs) Witcher is not one of them, because I promise you I would not have allowed them to let the barn owl sound like a pigeon or a dove. So the the noises were actually a ringneck dove. Yeah. I picked up on that right away. (sighs) But I do do love the Witcher. It's set in my, my time era that I love to pretend it was pretty cool. But yeah, so so we do two talks, two Hawk Talks. We do one at 12.15 and another one at 3.15 every day. But in the morning time, before the patrons are allowed in, they allow a select few of uh, the patrons to come in. And VIP. we do the King's Hawk Walk. And so what I do, and it's usually really early in the morning, so I'll show up, and there'll usually be, they max it out at 15 people. Mm-hmm. And so we will, we will go in, and we will talk about the special relationship that the king had with the, his master falconer. And that's all we talk about for about an hour. And we walk the whole rounds before anybody else is allowed in there. Me, and I usually bring a Harris Hawk and the 15 special people for that day. And we walk the grounds and I recreate what it was like for the king to walk with his master falconer in the early morning light and the questions that the king probably asked his master falconer about the king's hawks and the king's falcons. And so, you know, it's completely fictitious, but I try to put as much realism into it as possible because imagine a king who's in charge of this kingdom and how his time was consumed, but he had this special moment in the morning when he would walk with his master falconer and it allowed the master falconer to update the king on all of his falcons. Because in medieval time, a kingdom's wealth or the perception of a kingdom's wealth was tied very closely to how many falcons and hawks, goshawks probably. How many jeer falcons he had, right? How many they had, you know? And as you can imagine, you know, there was a whole system in place You know, there was a master falconer, and under the master falconer, there were multiple falconers of different stages, and then there were a bunch of apprentices, which were were young boys, which were boys that were like, we would consider them adolescents. You know, they were 10 to 14 years old, and those apprentices are the ones that did all of the hard work. They were your cadge boys, you know yeah, exactly holding all of the holding all the hawks as they walked out into the moors they were raking and cleaning the mews 
mm-hmm. you know, after the birds. They were out there hunting rats for food for all of these falcons. Oh, yeah. I mean, does anybody stop to think? We're in medieval times. There are no freezers. <laughs> Every day, oh, shoot. someone had to, to go gather enough food to feed all these hawks. And, and when you consider a jeer falcon, that's a pretty big bird. That's like two rats. At least two Minimum. rats. Okay. You know? At, at least two rats. But yeah, so all these apprentices, so there was this whole infrastructure to take care of the king's falcons. And mm-hmm. during the king's hawk walks in the morning at the Renaissance Fair, I walk through and I dip myself into my imagination of what it was like for the master falconer to be updating the king on all of his hawks. You know, certainly the king must have had favorites. Oh, of course. His favorite goshawk, his favorite falcon. And so the master falconer would definitely want to tell the the king which of the falcons was ready that day and ready to go, you know? Mm -hmm. And especially if the king was going to have a royal hunt. Yeah, if he was going to bring his buddies out, right? The court or, you know, neighboring dukes and stuff of that nature. Yo, yo, we got to have the A1 birds on point for that day, right? Yep. They wanted to know who who was on their A game and who was ready to go because the king wanted to make a great showing in front of, of all of his dukes and all of his earls, especially if there was a neighboring kingdom visiting. That was one of the big things. They would all go and hunt, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was bigger than anything. In that day and age, you know, Hollywood likes to portray the games was the big thing. Oh, yeah. But you know, the games were just a big thing for the locals, the peasants, the, the local hierarchy. No, if the king wanted to really impress his allies in another kingdom, they went on a royal falconry hunt because that was where the prestige was. Exactly. Yeah. If you could, if you had the best quarry and the best hawks, you brought your boys out. And, and, you know, to touch on what you just said, only the most high ranking could be on that hunt besides like the hands and stuff like that, helping facilitate, make it happen. So it was the, the highest invite, basically. Top of the line. It was the top of the line. And so the reason why falconry became known as the sport of kings was because so much clout, so much class, so much prestige was placed upon these birds. Mm -hmm. You can even see it now. You can see the remnants of it now in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. There is so much prestige. Absolutely. Falcons are on their literal currency. It's completely incredible. So back in that time period, if the king really wanted to impress another kingdom, it was not about the knights getting out in the middle of a ring and clubbing each other. No. It was not about the knights getting on horses and jousting. Those were all fun activities. But if he really wanted to impress another kingdom, it was the falcons that made that happen. So can you imagine the pressure on the master falconer? I can't, dude, I was thinking about that a few minutes ago. Dude, if like, 
What if one of his birds flies off like falcons do? Oh, man. You know what? Let's put a pin in that because I want to bring back to that because, <laughs> because that, that right there is serious. Uh, you know? Let's walk through what it was like to be in a royal hunt with the mm-hmm. king and his procession, the master falconer, and his profession or procession that made it happen, you know, all of his, all of his underclass falconers and all of his apprentices. Because this was a massive undertaking. This was a massive show. Yeah, you can't just do it with one person like we can now with all the technology we have. No, there had to be people. So there was all of the royalty right for the show that was there. There was the younger dude. Are we going to talk about that? We want to talk about the apprentices, the cadge holders, basically. And what a cadge is back in that day was like a wooden box, so to speak. It was a square, excuse me, and it was purchased for the Falcons. And so it would be a, like to to put it in today's terms, four two by fours put together in a square. And the apprentice Falconer would hold that at his side with maybe some straps on his shoulders to help shoulder the weight. And the Falcon, they would put the Falcons on the corners, basically. They would, the Falcons would sit there with their hoods on as they walked out into the field. And so, dude, can you imagine? There was a dude's duty, maybe they swapped on and off, who had to take, who like, literally, like you cannot put this on the back of a horse because it bumps too much. They had to walk the Falcons miles out, you know? And, and I, I guarantee you, they did that like either the day before and camped, right? Or like they went out that morning and then the King's procession arrived on horses that night or, you know, that evening or something. They had to walk Falcons miles to the hunting grounds. Bonkers. So let's say the Master Falconer said that 12 of the falcons were, they were in high hunting mode, you know? And so the master falconer would go out to where they were going to hunt. Let's just say there was this special pond that held ducks and they knew that there were always ducks there. So the master falconer would take five to six of his, let's call them general class falconers because that's terminology we use now. That wasn't used back then, but let's just say five or six of his underlings. And then he would have five or six apprentice, young boys that had these cadges on. And each of, each of these young boys had two to four falcons on each of the cadges. And the falcons had hoods on them and they were tied down to the cadges and they carried them. And they did. They went out the night before. They walked all this distance to wherever they were going and they would set up camp and they would have all the hawks, the falcons perched out. And then the next day, the royal procession would come in, the king and the dukes mm-hmm. and the earls, and they would ride up on their horses and so the, the master falconer would call everybody to attention. They'd get the birds ready and they would pick one bird, pick one falcon. And imagine they've got the king is oh. on his horse and they've got all the, the dukes and the earls all spread out. And they yeah. know where the pond is or the, or, or the small lake because they already scoped that all out. And so they all line up and then the falconer comes up and he unhoods the first falcon and they set that falcon up and that falcon rings up with no telemetry on. <gasps> yeah, so another one of the quick uh, aside. So because they didn't have telemetry, they would have four people on horses like spread out like 
the four corners of where they were hunting. There would be guys on horses in case the falcon decided to check off, meaning just leave, to follow it in whatever direction that it flies. I have to imagine that back then, they had this so spot on because their whole lives, was 24 yeah. hours a day, was focused on these birds. You know, it wasn't just a weekend hunt. Mm-mm. But anyway, so so they're all lined up on their horses and and they turn the, the falcon loose and the falcon rings up. And as soon as the falcon gets up, he sees the pond and the birds know because they do it every day and they do it to such an extent that they know what's up. And so they go up and so the bird flies up to a true 1,000 feet or so, maybe 1,500. Mm-hmm. Because back in those days, they didn't lie about how high their bird went up. Huh. You think so? I know so. They used to have a little piece of wood that had an X cut in it, and the falcon, the master falconer would hold it up to the sky, and when the falcon barely filled the little slit, then he would know about how high the bird was. And so when the bird was on pitch and up there and ready to go, and he set his wings, then the king's procession on the horses, they would rush the pond on their horses and Mm -hmm. it would flush the ducks. And then here would come this falcon screaming out of the sky. Yeah, what most people don't know is that when falcons do a stoop, it is very loud. It sounds like an airplane, the wind rushing past their wings. It sounds like It's incredible. And so the ducks take off and the ducks are flying out to fly off and the falcon picks one of them and he comes down and he slams it and feathers fly everywhere. And that falcon splits the duck's head open and the duck just tumbles open. And here's one thing. If the duck set his wings when he was hit and he actually does a tumble, that was considered fine style. And then the falcon would swoosh around. He would bank up. And then as the duck hit the ground and bounced, the falcon would bind to it. Mm -hmm. And so the flight was what it was all about because it was all about style. You know, the king wanted a show. And so how the falcon ringed up was considered style. How the falcon stooped and came out of the stoop and picked the duck, that was considered style. You know, how the duck fell out of the air, how that fall happened was all considered style. And then the wing over and the binding was considered fine style. And so the better the falcon performed, the better the reward for the master falconer. Because, you know, (laughs) one of the things about the master falconer is that the master falconer did not come from noble bloodlines. The master Mm -mm. falconer was a commoner that worked his way up through falconry. And And the master falconer's position was highly sought after because it was the one position that you could set at the king's table and you were not of noble blood. Yeah, it was the one way that a commoner could make his way up. Because like, you know, so you start out those little apprentice boys, right? And you could eventually work your way up maybe 20, 30 years if you, and if be you live that, that master falconer. Yeah, right. <laughs> and be that master falconer. And there was quite a bit of turnover 
as the master falconer. A good master falconer could retain his head, literally. (laughs) Could retain his head if he really knew his craft. However, if something happened to the king's prized falcon or falcons, guess who was beheaded? If a master falconer was not that good, he didn't last. Like they had a system of culling falconers that was brutal. Good Lord. Because taking the master falconer's head was pretty much as brutal as you can get, you know, but it did one thing. It certainly weeded out all the bad falconers. I can imagine that I can just think of some really crappy political ploys between like the guys next in line for the master falconers and like sabotaging a royal hunt. I'm sure that happened <laughs> once or twice. Had to have. That's why the master falconer had to be so brutal with <laughs> with with the apprentices and the people under him. You know, yeah. he had to be able to read people. Man, you want to talk about a boss that had to be able to fire people. Literally. Otherwise, it's his head. Yeah, that's it. You know, he didn't take any type of crap, you know. But, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of different types of falconry that the king hunted. You know, the king hunted partridge, quail, different types of herons, because it's a different type of falconry style. You know, and they're delicious to eat, and so they, it was like this big thing. Plus, it was so. First off, it was a big spectacle, as because the cranes are humongous, and you can see the flight for a long ways. You use big jeer falcons to do it, or monster peregrines, and you can see everything happening from a long ways away. And crane is delicious. Well, I've never eaten one, but I've heard that it is very good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to to describe that kind of flight, it's a completely different flight. You know, with ducks, they put the bird over the top of the ducks and the bird stoops down. But with cranes, they actually try to flush the crane first before they unhood the falcon. Yeah, and then tail chase, and then the whole procession chases the the flight. And so it's like this big spectacle on their horses where they're riding their horses and then following it with their eyes and, oh, oh, you know. (laughs) Yeah, and so, and that's really where you get to see exceptional flights of what's called ringing up. Because one of the things they tried to do was they tried to flush a crane or a herring in the marsh and they wanted the, the crane or the heron to fly up. Then they would release the falcon and the falcon would fly in circles underneath the crane and the falcon would not let the crane go left and right. The falcon would only let the crane go up. Up, yeah. And so the falcon would be underneath it constantly pushing the bird up. And so the, the, the crane wanting to try to escape the falcon. And so at some point, the falcon would be, okay, this is high enough. And the falcon would fly above the crane. And then the crane would do this maneuver where he flips over and tries to do a fall to stay out of the way of the falcon. And that's when the falcon will stoop and hit it, usually grabbing it by the head. As a matter of fact, if you look at any medieval falconry art, you will see a lot of falcons in the air, cranes flying, horses, and dogs. 
Mm-hmm. You know, especially the sight hounds, because when they were going after cranes and herons, they would use sight hounds, dogs that were focused on looking at the quarry instead of smelling for the quarry. And so it's pretty, it's pretty exciting stuff. You know, being, being a medieval falconer must have had some huge pressure, though. You know, trying to, trying to maintain those birds, trying to, trying to maintain everything you needed to go for 30 falcons. Because 30 to 40 falcons was right in there of a really rich, rich kingdom. 10 to 15 falcons was a medium-sized kingdom. <laughs> Five falcons was a little kingdom. You have to have enough where you could hunt multiple falcons every single day, basically, if the king wanted to. But also, it was a sign of wealth and prestige because if you were a kingdom that was rich enough to have that many, first of all, to be able Mm -hmm. to acquire that many, but then to have the support staff needed to take care of that many birds, you know, that that was all part of the prestige, you know? That was the sign of a successful kingdom was not only did you have all these birds, but you had the support structure, the infrastructure in place to support all the people needed to take care of those birds. Because like I said, try to imagine trying to feed that many birds Dude, every day. It's, it's insane. I've done that before with my grandpa, but we have freezers and captive bred quail in bags, you know? Yeah, and so people forget that every day, every single day, those little apprentice boys had to go out and they had to <laughs> capture meat <laughs> to feed all of these birds. You know, it's not like they were using chicken because chickens Mm-mm, were too no. valuable back then. You know, chickens laid eggs. And then prey that was captured you know, maybe the falcon gets to eat on the neck and the head, but dude, the rest was eaten that night, the banquet that they had, right? That's right. So, and that leads us to talking about the cook's hawk. You know, back in, back in those days, the peasants were the ones that really ended up naming all the different types of hawks because mm-hmm. they had no books, they had no education. And so people, the commoners, they named the birds off of what they caught the most because that was the most that was the easiest way to distinguish the different types of falcons, the different types of hawks, and the different types of birds. And so, for instance, there was the pigeon hawk, which was known as the the merlin. The you know? merlin, yeah. There was a duck hawk, which was known as the peregrine falcon. Mm-hmm. And then there was the cook's hawk also known as the goose hawk, but mostly it was known as the cook's hawk because when the master falconer and the royal cook had to come up with meat, you know what they took to go hunt? They took out the goose hawk. Took out the goshawk. Yeah. And the goshawk was just known for its ability to catch prey, but also its ability to catch a variety of things quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, the flights were not as flashy, and so the king did take them on the royal hunt, but it was really the cook that took them that went out with the master falconer to produce meat because if they had to catch twenty five partridges for the royal banquet, could you imagine like we're going to eat partridge tonight, the pressure on you to fill that order? Oh yeah, 
of course, now we, we, we do have to take into consideration that in that day, humans were not as populous. There were not as many That's humans. True. Okay. And, and so they had different types of agricultural techniques. You know, they certainly did not do edge to edge agriculture. You no, know? no, no. And they planted and they prepared the different areas of the kingdom to hold lots of game. Ah. So they always had pheasant. They always had partridge. They always had turkeys. There's a, a number of different types of, of species that they had, and there were large numbers of them. They knew and they cultivated rabbit warrens where there were 70 to 80 rabbits in one warren. And so they had these areas that were set up, but it was the goshawk that they took whenever they wanted to go catch a lot of prey. That's because they didn't have Harris hawks back then because they're a new world species. Yeah, Harris hawks certainly were considered just carrying trash birds forever for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, Harris hawks were classed in there with vultures and caracaras for a long time. You know, it wasn't really until the 70s that somebody goes, hey, these birds could probably do falconry. You know, my, my, my grandpa accidentally found out they will hunt cooperatively. He was flying two separately, as you would with any other bird. You don't fly them together because they'll kill each other, right? And he, and this is even before Taco Bell, <laughs> because they're a desert species, and he got them in like West Texas, he had one named Taco. And another one named Belle, you know, the female's name was Belle because it's a pretty girl's name. And so before Taco Bell even existed, he had a pair of Harris hawks named Taco and Belle. And so he had flown Belle. I think she caught one thing. She, he didn't crop her up. And then he took out Taco, the male, to, to fly as well. And, you know, we didn't really have tea perches back then. This is back in the 70s. And so he flew up to a telephone pole. And then he said that he, like, didn't fully close the latch on Bell's giant hood. And as he was, like, finishing getting his, like, walking out into the field, he heard the bells behind him and saw her flying up to the telephone pole. And he's like, in his mind, oh my gosh, that's it. She's going to kill him. And that's just the way it goes. And she flew up to the pole and she flew to the top and Taco jumped off of the top of the pole for her. You know what I mean? Because males are subordinate to females. Right. And he's like, oh, okay. All right. And, you know, they did their little... Ah. Man, they talked to each other because I'm sure they were weathered together. You know what I mean? You can still weather birds together. So they pretty much knew who each other were the whole time. He just didn't know that Harris Hawks hunt in the wild cooperatively. And so sure enough, he's like, uh, all right, you know, and they eventually ended up catching stuff together. And then down the line, he flew him in a cast. That's a pretty cool story. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Who would have known? Yeah, if the Kings had Harris Hawks back then, I think the Harris <laughs> Hawk would have had a special thing. But, you know, if you're watching a medieval movie and you see a Harris yeah. Hawk, I promise you that that was not a movie that I really wanted to participate in. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't say that I wouldn't because I probably would because if people pay me to do certain things, I mean, that's probably one thing I would do, a misrepresentation mm -hmm. of the right species in the, <laughs> in, the, in the time because I would certainly rather work with a couple of Harris Hawks than a couple of Goshawks on a movie set. You know? oh, Can you imagine golly. trying to work with a couple of Goshawks on a movie set? No, it would be a nightmare. 
goshawks can be pretty temperamental, you know? It's like goshawks tend to like to know what's going to happen up front, and they tend to like to do the same things that they've always done with the same people they've always done it with. At all times. And even my Merlin's the same way. They work pretty well in that environment, you know? I've seen a lot of problems with goshawks not liking certain people in the field, not liking something changing, not liking a certain color hat. Oh, you dude, know? exactly. The hat. A hat in general. If the falconer himself doesn't wear a hat out and you wear a hat, you know, they're flying to the next county. Yeah. And, you know, Harris hawks tend to be more forgiving, which also makes for a lazy falconer. But also, <laughs> you know, the Harris hawks t- seem to tolerate so much. Mm-hmm. which makes them great to work with, especially if you're in an environment where things are like really changing, like on a movie set where you've got cameras moving on dollies and you've got big lights coming and turning off and on and you've got actors starting and restarting and starting and restarting. You know, you got all of this commotion. You know, the Harris Hawks tend to take it pretty well. And you've been on a couple of these sets. You've done some yeah. work with one of the owls, you know? Mm-hmm. Along those same lines, I was thinking... Because Harrisocks are so smart, you know, and they do well in these situations, wouldn't also Karakaras do exceptionally well with how intelligent they are and how crazy looking they are? I think we need to do a whole podcast on raptor personalities. Yeah. Because I would love to get my hands on a Karakara and and work with it because they are incredibly smart. You know what else I would love to get my hands on? I would love to get my hands on a Johnny Rook. And there's a bird out there called a Johnny Rook that looks like it's half Harris Hawk and half Caracara and very social, looks like a Harris Hawk that runs around on the ground all the time. Johnny Rook. Oh, it, it, it is a Caracara. It's called a striated Caracara. Okay. Ah. And so really, really smart. Very, very social oh in nature. Oh my gosh, dude. It looks exactly like a Harris hawk. <laughs> Dude, it has the same it has the same brown patches under its wings and the same brown legs. That's hilarious. I know. If you YouTube, there's some really good YouTube of explorers on the islands and the Johnny Rooks come in and just completely destroy camps because they're so curious and they're not afraid of people and they're social in nature and, and they want to get into everything. I would love to have a Johnny Rook. I, I think that would be an incredible bird to work with, especially for a movie set. Dude. All right. Well, let's put that in our freaking, let's put that in our goal list for like maybe a five-year goal, a Kara Kara. Yeah, definitely. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Well, you know, Renaissance fairs are incredibly popular. They're a lot of fun. If you haven't been to one, definitely YouTube it and look it up. While you're on YouTube, go to our YouTube channel, Wildlife Command Center. I've got a bunch of cool stuff on there. If you had to kind of look through the playlist to find the Renaissance stuff, but there is a lot of cool Renaissance stuff on there. I love the Renaissance fairs. It's so much fun. It's so educational. It's an escape from reality. You know, <laughs> where you can get out there and pretend like you're somebody else and something different. The St. Louis one is kind of in the middle of nowhere, so the cell service is spotty. But then when the cell service does come in, I'm sure your phone's, I mean, I've, I've had to call you, Michael, Michael, help me put out this fire. I'm at the Renaissance <laughs> Festival. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, Jeez. it is like that. But yeah, I, I enjoy the Renaissance fairs. 
You know, if any of the if any of the listeners want to talk about Renaissance fairs, they can certainly go to our YouTube channel and and leave some comments. Man, I'm always checking the comments on the YouTube channel. I'm always engaging on the YouTube channel, and and I answer any questions that people might have. And it's the best way to interact with us too. Yeah, we're always on there talking to people. Absolutely. All righty, that was a good episode. Thank you for jumping on here with me, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. All right, and and if you guys have any wildlife issues that you need resolution in St. Louis, Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Dallas, Texas, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Reno, Nevada, or Sacramento, California, please give Wildlife Command Center a call. Check us out on our wildlifecommandcenter.com or Facebook or Instagram. We're on all of those sources. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you again, Michael Bearhands Baran for jumping on with me. Bare hands, brand signing out. <laughs> Have a good one. Thank you for listening. God bless. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this podcast. This is Michael Baran, aka Bare Hands Baran. Make sure you go now to Discovery Plus, download our reality TV show, Bare Hands Rescue, where we are out there every day rescuing people from wild animals. It is entertaining, it is engaging, and it is informative. Download it today and listen for our next podcast.